0: At 750,000 square miles, the Confederacy was huge. And to put down the rebellion, Mr. Lincoln's armies had to go on the offensive. They would have to be the aggressor. It was a daunting task, even more so in the Confederate West, where there existed poor transportation and communication networks, known early on as the Western Department or Department No. 2, Three major rivers offered invasion avenues into the heartland of the South. The Mississippi, Tennessee, and Cumberland. This is the story of a federal campaign led by an officer who was a most unlikely hero. One forced to resign from the United States Army back in 1854. This is about his campaign to blast open doors into the interior of the Confederacy. This is the story of thunder on the rivers, Tennessee and Cumberland, Forts Henry and Donaldson. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was Confederate full General Albert Sidney Johnston who had the unenviable task of defending the Confederacy's largest department. The 58-year-old officer was responsible for a defensive line that stretched some 680 miles from Missouri through Bowling Green, Kentucky, to the Cumberland Gap. He needed help, but was not blessed with gifted lieutenants. One was Tennessean Brigadier General Gideon Pillow, who had once been a former law partner of future President James Knox Polk. An arrogant planter in peacetime, Pillow, aged 55 at the beginning of the war, was in command of Tennessee's Provisional Army. Then there was Major General Leonidas Polk, the so-called Fighting Bishop. An Episcopal Bishop before the war, he was an 1827 graduate of the United States Military Academy. Also 55, the close friend of Confederate President Jefferson Davis was tall, silver-haired, broad-faced, and sported long sideburns. And he was a better bishop than a military officer. Another lieutenant was 38-year-old native Kentuckian Brigadier General Simon Bolivar Buckner, who before the war was a close friend of one Ulysses S. Grant. In fact, After Grant's forced resignation from the Army in 1854, and upon his return from Northern California to New York City, it was Buckner who vouched for Grant's hotel bill, enabling him until he could finally make it home to his family, who at the time were in White Haven, Missouri. Though the Confederacy's defensive line ran through southern Kentucky, Tennessee Governor Isham Harris knew his state was vulnerable. To be proactive, he sent 60-year-old Brigadier General Daniel S. Donaldson to locate sites for forts on the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. The one constructed on the east bank of the Tennessee, we believe, was named for one of Tennessee's Confederate senators, Gustavus A. Henry. Strategically well-cited, geographically, It set in a flood plain. The second installation, 12 miles east of Fort Henry, and overlooking the west bank of the Cumberland River, Fort Donaldson set on a bend in that river some 12 miles south of the Kentucky border. It was named for the officer Governor Harris had sent to site the two forts. Both forts, Henry and Donaldson, were designed to stop river traffic, but attack by infantry, was an afterthought. For Fort Donelson, that would prove fatal. The two forts protected an area in northwestern Tennessee that was vital for Confederate iron production. And then, there was the strategic importance of the two rivers. If Fort Henry fell, Federals via the Tennessee River could drive as far south as Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And if Fort Donelson was captured, Nashville was exposed. Still, one had to capture the forts, and that required vessels designed for river traffic. Enter naval architect Samuel Pook and Commander John Rogers, who bought three steamboats from the Sum 500 that traveled the Mississippi and Ohio rivers, the Conestoga, Lexington, and Tyler, and converted them all into shallow, drafted timber clads. Meanwhile, in St. Louis, another naval engineer, James B. Eads, was contracted to build seven shallow-drafted vessels and was to have them ready for duty in 65 days. Eads mobilized over 4,000 men from eight states, and they went to work 24-7 to meet their deadline. Pook and Rogers' timber clads were 180 feet long side wheelers with a draft of 6 feet and could make 7 to 10 knots. Their two decks were protected by 5 inches of oak timber, but quite honestly, that protected the vessels only from small arms fire. Eads' iron clads were 175 feet long. 51 feet wide, and weighed in at 512 tons. Top speed, 6 knots. Built of white oak, their casemates sloped at a 45-degree angle and ranged in thickness from 26 inches in the front to 19 aft. Over the white oak, 122 tons of charcoal iron plated 2 inches thick. Despite that iron plating, they too had a soft spot. Their aft, which meant machinery and boilers, were vulnerable. Their wooden decks could also be exposed to plunging fire. Ede's seven humpbacked city-class gunboats, or ironclads, or turtles as they were sometimes called, were the Cairo, Carondelet, Cincinnati, Louisville, Mound City, St. Louis, and Pittsburgh. Fleet constructed, it needed a solid commander, and it got one. Flag officer Andrew Hall Foote hailed from New Haven, Connecticut. The 55-year-old naval officer joined the United States Navy at 16 and had been around the world by the time he was 18. Dark-haired, A piercing eye, clean-shaven upper lip, he was a Congregationalist and detested swearing and alcohol. He firmly believed taking the war to the enemy. When he first met Brigadier General U.S. Grant, the two immediately bonded, for both fought offensively. That thought found expression when on September 3, 1861, Kentucky's self-declared neutrality was violated by Confederate activity. Thirty-nine-year-old Grant, on his own initiative, seized Paducah, Kentucky, three days later. Its location, vitally important, for it set at the juncture of the Ohio and Tennessee Rivers, a perfect jumping-off point for knifing into the heart of the Confederacy. The very next day, to command a division under Grant, blue-eyed Brigadier General Charles F. Smith arrived. At 54, he was 15 years Grant's senior. In fact, Smith had not only been commandant of cadets when Grant was at West Point, but was his infantry tactics instructor. At first, it was quite strange for Grant, who remarked, It does not seem quite right for me to give General Smith orders. Yet Smith quickly reassured his younger commanding officer when he told him, I know a soldier's duty. Pray, feel no awkwardness. After the occupation of Paducah, Grant planned his next step, and to get permission for it, traveled to St. Louis in late January of 1862 to present it to the recently renamed Department of the Missouri's new commanding officer, 47-year-old Major General Henry Halleck. Pudgy, High forehead, balding, he had heavy saddlebags under eyes which bulged and were slightly crossed. As curious as he looked, he also possessed a brusque manner that easily offended. A prolific writer on military science, Halleck was nicknamed Old Brains, but maybe, just maybe too much book learning, for he was cautious, an armchair general. For him... By the book. He was the antithesis to Grant and Foote's aggressive, the enemy approach. The meeting between Grant and Halleck did not go well. The new department commander was wary of his subordinate. Quite honestly, Halleck did not trust Grant, and so when the campaign to move south on Forts Henry and Donelson was presented, Halleck, thinking it reckless, coldly, rudely dismissed it. As Grant noted after the icy encounter, I returned very much crestfallen. And yet, upon his return to Cairo, Illinois, Grant and Foote continued to tinker with their plan in the hope that Halleck might change his mind. While they waited, Fort Henry's 46-year-old commanding officer, Kentuckian Brigadier General Lloyd Tillman, was desperately buying time. Overseeing the construction of both Confederate forts, things were going slowly. There were shortages of everything—labor, troops, materials. And as we mentioned earlier, it didn't help that Fort Henry was built on low, swampy ground. Locals warned Tillman that with the Tennessee River's potential winter rise, the highest point in the fort would be submerged by some two feet. Work 12 miles east at Fort Donaldson was also going half-heartedly. Much to Tillman's chagrin, across the Cumberland River on its east bank, there was Little Peggy's brothel. Half-hearted was not a problem there. Though Albert Sidney Johnson was aware there were issues, he never personally visited the sites. He remained in Nashville fixated on a federal force of 45,000 up at Louisville. With his gaze fixed, Confederate defense was static. Yet even so, Fort Henry and Fort Donelson began to take shape. Fort Henry had five sides. Its walls were 20 feet above normal water level. They were 20 feet thick at their base and tapered to 10 at the top. There were 17 guns, six faced land. The fort and surrounding area covered some 10 acres. Fort Donelson covered 15 acres. Its walls were 10 feet high. 11 heavy guns faced the Cumberland River. Just as elevated ridges and hills plagued Fort Henry, so too Fort Donelson was vulnerable from the south and west. While both forts were nearing completion, General Johnston asked Richmond for assistance. It came in the form of a politician-turned-soldier, John B. Floyd, the 55-year-old former governor of Virginia and once-indicted Secretary of War under James Buchanan. Now, a Confederate brigadier general, Johnston sent him and one brigade of Virginians to Fort Donelson. However, if Jefferson Davis knew the aggressive nature of Grant and Foote, he might have sent more men and, most certainly, another officer. About this time, federal intelligence reached Henry Halleck in St. Louis, informing him that Confederate full General P.G.T. Beauregard was on the way west and with him, 15 southern regiments. Though the information was faulty, only Beauregard was headed west. The fall of 15 reassigned Confederate regiments forced Halleck's hand. On January the 30th, 1862, he gave Grant and Foote what they desperately wanted, a green light. And so, the two organized and finalized. Grant's 1st Infantry Division was placed under 59-year-old Brigadier General John A. McClernand. His second, under Smith. Total land force, some 15,000. Foote's flotilla, four ironclads and three timberclads. In early morning rain on February the 3rd, 1862, 23 infantry regiments, men from Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa, and Foote's River Fleet departed Paducah, Kentucky, and headed upstream, up the Tennessee. After the Army-Navy force traveled some 60 miles, Fort Henry slid into view. Early the next morning, Grant landed McClernand's entire division three miles to the north of the Confederate fort and did so unopposed. Empty transports now steamed back to Paducah to pick up Smith's infantry division. Things were going well. Grant and Foote felt confident. But inside Fort Henry, Tillman did not. Fully aware that heavy rains had swollen the Tennessee, he knew Foote's buoyant flotilla would actually be able to gaze down on Fort Henry's earthworks. And indeed, it was bad. Part of the fort's low-lying grounds were under two-foot puddles. Its guns only six feet above water. The powder magazine threatened. And for weapons, many of Tillman's 2,600 men were armed only with shotguns and hunting rifles. The best armed, the 10th Tennessee. They had flintlocks from the War of 1812. Simply put, Fort Henry was in trouble. Seven Union gunboats with 54 heavy cannon planned to rain iron and lead on Henry's 17 guns and pin the fort's defenders down while McClernand and, once they arrived, Smith's divisions would envelop the Confederate installation from behind. On the 5th of February, skies were leaden, gray. That night, more heavy rain so much that Henry's parade ground disappeared underwater. A realist, Tillman decided he would evacuate the fort, but he wanted one hour of artillery fire to allow his troops a head start on the mired roads east to Fort Donelson. The next day, Thursday the 6th, the skies cleared and Foote's flotilla bore down at 11 a.m. Four abreast they steamed inside Fort Henry. Only artillerists remained to man the guns and they concentrated their fire on the Cincinnati. At 1215, the Federals fired their first shot. It was Naval history, the first use of ironclads against an earthen fort. As the distance closed, a Confederate shell found the Essex. It plowed through her casemate and boiler. Scalding water and steam filled the front half of the vessel killing and wounding 32. The Essex was through. The Cincinnati was hit 31 times. One shell penetrated her iron-plated casemate, killing one and wounding nine. The St. Louis was hit seven times. The Carondelet, six. Meanwhile, federal infantry struggled mightily through mud and water to reach their objective. Their misery was shared. At 12.30, the Confederacy's big 24-pound rifled gun exploded. The mouth of a 32-pounder was disabled. A premature explosion rendered a 42-pounder useless. By now, only four guns could be brought to bear. Things were so desperate that Tillman himself manned a 32-pounder. When Foote's vessels closed to about 600 yards, Tillman knew it was over. He sent up a white flag. Finally acknowledged, the Cincinnati launched a boat. It came in through one of the fort's embrasures. Tillman was taken to the Cincinnati, where he officially surrendered Fort Henry. In the fight that lasted only 75 minutes, 12 officers, 66 men, and 16 more on a hospital boat became prisoners. 20 cannon and plenty of stores were captured, and all done at a cost of 15 killed and 20 wounded. Grant himself finally arrived on the scene at 3 p.m., but by then, the stars and stripes had been fluttering over the fort for almost an hour. Thirty minutes after Grant's arrival, Federal infantry reached their assigned position, only to learn that Fort Henry had embarrassingly for them surrendered to the United States Navy. And even more embarrassing, federal infantry had not been able to scoop up many of the Confederates who fled east. Those that escaped reached Fort Donelson around 2 a.m. the next morning. They lived to fight another day, but many who arrived had had no food or water for some 36 hours. The capture of Fort Henry was a Confederate disaster, And it was going to get worse and quickly. With the Tennessee River open, Foote sent his three timber clads, the Tyler, Conestoga, and Lexington upriver. For six days, they wreaked havoc. They destroyed ferries, steamboats, bridges. They severed the vitally important Memphis and Charleston Railroad and penetrated upriver as far as Florence, Alabama before the naval raid ended February the 12th. Grant and Foote had tasted victory, and they wanted more. Back in St. Louis, an ecstatic Henry Halleck claimed credit for the capture, then immediately began to worry more about what Confederates in Fort Donaldson might do to Grant than what Grant might do to them. And while Halleck applauded Flag Officer Foote, he now regarded Grant as a rival and secretly maneuvered to replace him. Unaware of Halleck's intrigue, Grant wanted to, as he put it, keep the ball moving as lively as possible. He wanted Fort Donelson. From Fort Henry, two roads led there, the 12-mile-long Telegraph Road and Ridge Road, which ran 14 miles. On both, he sent out reconnaissance parties, even as Halleck conspired against him. From the Confederate perspective, a concerned Albert Sidney Johnston pulled back his defensive line at Bowling Green and Columbus, Kentucky, and hoped Fort Donelson would hold out long enough for his main army to reach Nashville, Tennessee. To do that, Fort Donelson needed a commander, and Brigadier General Gideon Pillow was ordered to take command. Then to bolster Confederate defenses, Johnston ordered Brigadier General John B. Floyd and 12 infantry regiments, one cavalry regiment, and an independent company to Fort Donelson. And when Floyd arrived to join Buckner and Pillow as the third Brigadier General on the scene, Floyd was told to take command. With three Brigadier Generals, too many cooks in the kitchen, With three brigadier generals, at best, a clumsy and awkward command situation. Militarily speaking, the ablest was Buckner. But in the established chain of command, he was third behind Pillow and the militarily inept Virginian John B. Floyd. While the Confederacy had command issues, Grant had his own trials and tribulations. One, rising river levels threatened his land force from afar in St. Louis, Halleck bombarded Grant with micromanaging telegrams. One ordered him to hold Henry at all cost. impossible since it was underwater. Despite all the mud and floodwater, Grant prepared to move his force toward a Fort Donaldson that was hurriedly trying to improve its defenses. There, things went slowly so slowly that in Nashville, Albert Sidney Johnston feared Foote's gunboats were unstoppable. At Fort Donelson, Brigadier Generals Buckner and Floyd shared his pessimism and wanted to evacuate, but Pillow did not. Meanwhile, as Grant prepped, he decided to hold a council of war. In it, he posed, move or wait for more reinforcements. Debate ensued. And ensured one thing. U.S. Grant, a man of action, would never hold another council of war. He wanted to press the enemy, in part because he knew Gideon Pillow was there, an officer Grant remembered from the Mexican War, an officer he knew inept, in fact the only Confederate officer he ever held in contempt. And he wanted to move for another reason. He feared Henry Halleck would order him back. And so it would be at 4.30 a.m. on February the 12th, Flag Officer Foote gave the order for four ironclads, two wooden gunboats, and 11 steamers carrying 6,000 men from Indiana and Ohio to move upstream on the Cumberland River. That same day, at 8 a.m., Grant and 15,000 men began their 12-mile march east toward Fort Donaldson. That day, the weather was mild, and men from Illinois and Iowa believed an early spring embraced them. Many discarded overcoats and blankets. It was a decision many would soon regret. By 11 that morning, Grant's force was within three miles of Donaldson's Outer Works. He made his headquarters at the Widow Crisp Place, and from there ordered his old West Point instructor, Charles Smith, to place his division on the left and John McClernand's on the right. During the rest of the day, both divisions probed Confederate lines. By nightfall, his force blocked two main roads— But there still were a few gaps. He waited for Foote's flotilla. Meanwhile, John B. Floyd was on the scene, and he made his headquarters at a hotel in nearby Dover, which was a little town three miles downriver from the fort. There, Floyd learned that Grant's divisions were probing. That night of the 12th and 13th, it was Mother Nature who decided to attack. Temperatures plunged, began to rain, then sleet, and by morning there were three inches of snow. Those who had thrown away coats and blankets cursed their luck. Ordered to build no fires, a wind straight from out of the north added to their misery. That night, Grant's army was spread over two miles of hills and hollows, with a gap on its extreme right and even more dangerously between the two infantry divisions. That night, the Confederates had an opportunity, but they failed to seize it. At 1 a.m. of the 14th, Confederate Brigadier Generals Floyd, Pillow, and Buckner met for the first time in Dover. It was a gathering of contrasting personalities. In descending authority, there was Floyd, the politician in uniform. Pillow, arrogant, egocentric, insubordinate, assertive. And Buckner, third in seniority, proficient, but an unwilling participant. Together, they hatched a plan to break out of their encirclement and escape to Nashville. Yet the next morning, a bitterly cold one. Nothing happened until around noon. And then Pillow began a drive, but just as he did, a sniper's bullet found an infantryman near him. Turning to an aide, he announced, Captain, our movement is discovered. It will not do to move out of our trenches under these circumstances. The aide, one of Floyd's staff, disagreed. But Pillow continued, Tell General Floyd that I think so and that the attack had better be deferred until morning. In short, a blown opportunity. Confederate paralysis then fell victim to Union aggression. At 2 p.m., again, four abreast, up churned foot. At 2.35, Fort Donelson came into view. 55 minutes later, 12 heavy Confederate guns opened up and Flag Officer Foote quickly learned that Fort Donelson was no Fort Henry. This time from elevated positions, great fat drops of lead and iron pounded his fleet. The Louisville was hit 39 times and drifted out of the fight. The St. Louis hit 59 times did as well. One of those hits wounded Foote. And left ankle and arm. Both the Pittsburgh hit 20 times and the Carondelet 54 times. Both suffered breached hulls and shipped water. The fleet turned back. Confederate artillerists had fired some 500 shots. Foote's fleet, only 300. There would be no naval victory at Fort Donelson. No, this time, in bitter cold and sleet, and snow. It would have to be besieged by land. That night, Confederate morale soared, but at another Confederate council of war, opinion remained divided. Floyd still wanted to break out. Despite his aborted attempt to escape earlier that day, Pillow still wanted to fight. Buckner agreed with Pillow, then changed his mind to opt for escape, which Floyd finally authorized. Orders were issued to peel back the Union right, but the details were unclear, and that would have consequences. For common soldiers along the lines that night, there was more sleet and cold. Conditions were so bad that the time to launch the breakout was pushed back an hour. Finally, on the 15th, the attempt was made, and when it came, Grant was away at a conference with Foote. It was McClernand's division which bore the brunt of the Confederate assault, and he sent a desperate note to Grant's headquarters, but in his absence, his staff, all to a man, aware that Grant had left orders not to bring on any general engagement, refused to take responsibility for any order or action. By noon, McClernand's right flank was forced back, a door opened for Confederate escape, Yet the attack had problems. First, only some 6,500 Confederates had moved against twice their number. And second, although there had been initial success, more Confederate troops were needed to keep the door open. Gideon Pillow, whose men had made the initial attack, hurried over to find his support. Buckner's men, and to his dismay, found them still in their trenches when Pillow confronted Buckner face-to-face, there was great tension. Jarred into action, Buckner's men stirred, and despite the lull, Confederate pressure continued to hold open the avenue for escape. One who had assisted in that effort was Colonel Nathan Bedford Forrest and his 3rd Tennessee Cavalry. Seemingly everywhere and constantly exposed, his horse was shot seven times. It collapsed he got another. It, too, went down, solid shot, tearing through the unfortunate animal's hindquarters, narrowly missing Forrest's legs. His overcoat ripped and torn by no less than 15 Federal bullets. By 1230, the door for escape was still ajar, but Confederate artillery and cavalry were needed to hold it open. Meanwhile, troops from the Federal Center shifted right to aid McClernand. Despite Grant's absence and no one at his headquarters daring to make a decision, one Union officer showed courageous initiative. It was the future author of the literary classic Ben-Hur, 34-year-old Brigadier General Lew Wallace, who ordered his some 2,000 men to give timely aid to the threatened federal right flank. By 2 p.m., the military picture had changed. Though the Confederacy had not been driven back and their avenue of escape was still open, they had lost momentum and confusion reigned amongst their command. Gideon Pillow, whose men had opened the door, suddenly ordered his men to return to Fort Donaldson. He did so believing his men were to return to the fort, draw ammunition, collect equipment, then escape. His men had inflicted 1,000 casualties, had routed four Union brigades, and yet now, incredibly, he ordered them to fall back. While all this unfolded, Grant finally returned from his conference, alerted he had ridden seven miles on icy roads, and upon arrival was livid. Completely understanding Confederate intent, he rode out to find Generals Wallace and McLaren. His face crimson with anger, his hand convulsively crumpling pieces of paper, he overheard McLaren vent, this army needs a head. In a controlled, measured fashion, he said, it seems so. Then calmly, he said, gentlemen, the position on the right must be retaken." To assist, Foote was ordered to create a diversion from the river, and Smith's division on the Union left was to press forward. And when it did, it found what Grant expected, that the Confederate right flank had been stripped to aid the Confederate attack on its other flank. Smith's Federal men punched through at several points. By late in the day of the 15th of February, with the Confederate attack on its left stalled and its right penetrated, Fort Donaldson was in trouble. The opportunity provided by an escape door wrenched open that morning had been missed. Though it had been a trying day, a common soldier in butternut and gray felt optimistic. After all, they had turned the Federals that morning and believed they could do it again the next day. However, events developed that night at another Confederate Council of War that would have given them reason to harbor grave doubts. At that gathering, after great confusion and missed opportunities that day, harsh words were exchanged. Buckner wanted to know why a route was opened then allowed to close. Pillow recounted that he thought the plan was to open a door, then go back to get equipment and escape that night. Floyd then asked, Well, gentlemen, what is best now to be done? When reports suggested that escape was impossible, the topic of surrender came up. Nathan Bedford Forrest entered the conference around midnight and was stunned to hear of such talk. He maintained there was still a way out on the extreme Confederate left. Yes, there would be mud half-leg deep and one to two hundred yards of cold water about saddle-skirt deep, but nonetheless, escape. Pillow wanted to fight. Buckner, skeptical. He knew food was low. There was fatigue, low ammunition. He was fixed on surrender, and Floyd, after taking it all in, agreed. Defeatism swallowed every officer in that room, everyone except Forrest. Then, an incredible chain of events. Floyd believed that if he surrendered, he would be tried for treason and hanged. Buckner berated him and said if he were in command, he would share the fate of his men. Floyd then asked. If command should devolve to you, would you permit me to take out my little brigade of Virginians? Buckner fired back. Yes, but only if you leave before the terms of capitulation are agreed upon. Then following chain of command, Floyd turned to Pillow and said, General, I turn the command over, sir. Pillow then turned toward Buckner and said, I pass it. Buckner spoke up. I assume it. Give me pen, ink, and paper, and send for me a bugler. In disgust, Forrest growled, I did not come here for the purpose of surrendering my command. No matter, Floyd and Pillow began to make plans to abandon the place. Appalled, Forrest turned to Pillow. General, I fought under your command. What shall I do? Pillow said, Cut your way out. And Forrest spat back, I will, by God. Sure enough, early Sunday morning, February the 16th, Forrest's column of 500 moved along the route he knew existed. There was mud, freezing cold water, ice on the banks, but his force escaped and would live to fight another day. That same morning, Brigadier General Gideon Pillow and his staff abandoned Fort Donelson by means of a 12-foot flatboat. Shortly afterward, John B. Floyd and his brigade of Virginians prepared to board two steamboats which would ferry them across the Cumberland River to safety. Floyd, one of the first to board, moved to the top deck and with sword raised, crowed, Come on, my brave Virginia boys! The posturing was incredibly ill timed, particularly after he had ordered the Twentieth Mississippi, with drawn bayonets, to form a defensive arc to make sure no one else joined them. As the boarding neared completion, word arrived that Union steamers had been sighted. And that revelation prompted Floyd to order the boats to cast off, and in their haste, he abandoned the 20th Mississippi and even his own personal staff. While Floyd and Pillow fled, Buckner sent a message to his old friend, U.S. Grant. When it arrived, Grant got out of a feather bed, drew on his trousers, and while his former West Point instructor, Charles Smith, warmed his backside by a fire, Grant read the message aloud. Within, Buckner asked if they might meet to discuss terms for surrender. Turning to Smith, Grant asked, Well, what do you think? And his old infantry tactics instructor barked, No terms to the damned rebels. And so Grant sat down and wrote out a message to a man who before the war had loaned him money. He wrote a message that would make him famous. He wrote, No terms except an unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to immediately move on your works. Buckner had little choice but to accept what he bitterly called ungenerous and unchivalrous terms. White flags went up all along the lines, and as the sun started to warm the wet, wintry landscape, federal troops began to occupy Fort Donelson. The installation of the Cumberland River had cost Grant, of his 27,000 men engaged, some 500 killed. 2,000 wounded, some 200 missing. Confederate casualties were around 300 killed, 1,200 wounded, and a staggering 12,000 captured, along with 20,000 stands of arms, 65 artillery pieces, 1,200 boxes of beef, and mountains of provisions. Though Gideon Pillow and John Floyd escaped, they became victims of their own doing. Upon reaching Nashville, Pillow wanted a new command. None was extended. Floyd's career never recovered. In August of 1863, he fell victim to disease. Conversely, the North had an unlikely new hero, U.S. Unconditional Surrender Grant. Yet while headlines saying his praises far behind the lines, Henry Halleck went after him. Unaware of victory and worried about a possible Confederate attack, he badgered Grant with messages. Yet when he learned of Confederate surrender, his needling turned into elation. He, simultaneously, claimed credit while toying with the idea of taking Grant's command. When the glorious news reached Washington City, Lincoln was beyond elation he had his first major victories of the war. For the South, as Albert Sidney Johnston feared, the fall of Forts Henry and Donelson had immediate and terrible consequences. Nine days later, Nashville, the capital of the State of Tennessee, fell to a Union force under Brigadier General Don Carlos Buell. The man who made that possible? U.S. Grant went to Tennessee's state capitol February 24th, where, like Halleck, a jealous Buell coldly received him. Buell believed Grant had left without permission his military department and complained to Halleck, who all too gladly complained to General-in-Chief George B. McClellan back in Washington City. Incredibly. For the man who, on his own initiative, occupied Paducah, Kentucky, who put together campaigns to reduce Fort Henry and Fort Donelson, who opened invasion avenues on the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers, and who gave the 16th president his first major victories of the American Civil War, George B. McClellan ordered Grant's arrest and removal. Yet he had an ally. Abraham Lincoln would have none of it. Abraham Lincoln would simply not allow it. U.S. Grant was allowed to be more than an historical footnote, and as his country would most certainly appreciate in the coming years, Ulysses S. Grant would be allowed to fulfill his destiny. While the North celebrated, there was grave concern in the South. Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston's western defensive line snapped. Its collapse, all the trappings of tactical and strategic disaster. Forts Henry and Donelson were in Union hands, and now the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers would be exploited. Yes, the South would lick its wounds. Its armies would regroup and strike back, but the wound, as time would tell, would be one that would prove mortal. When we next gather we'll return to the first Saturday in March 1865. We'll mingle with those assembled before the eastern portico of the United States Capitol, all gathered on a wet and muddy day to hear Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address only about 600 words, his speech generally regarded as the greatest speech in American history. We'll put you in the crowd. We'll tell that story. I hope you will join us. Finally, we at Threads from the National Tapestry are so very pleased to welcome two new patrons, Tim Koenig of Richmond, and from Wilmington, North Carolina, William Jordan, who shares his love, passion, and the powerful lessons of history with his 10-year-old son, David. Tim, William, David, thank you for your kindness, kind words, and support. Until we gather again, this is Fred Kyder. Thank you for listening.